This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm the director of the Special Pathogens Research Network at NITEC and an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. For those of you not yet familiar with NITEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogens preparedness and response across health systems in the United States with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NITEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. Joining me today as co-host is Ms. Rachel Luckadoo, a public health lawyer and assistant professor at UNMC with me. Say hi, Rachel. Hi, Lauren. Happy to be here. Rachel and I are coming together for the third episode in our series about pathogens and pop culture. Pathogens are everywhere, and we're going to bring you some of the best and the brightest experts to get a reality check on what's science and what's Hollywood in some of our favorite shows, books, and movies. On today's docket, disease outbreak response and the way it's portrayed in the movies Outbreak and Contagion. And to talk with us about this, Dr. Syra Madad. Dr. Madad is the Senior Director of System Special Pathogen Program at New York City Health and Hospitals and one of our NITEC subject matter experts. Welcome to the show, Syra. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to, to speak with you both. Fair warning to our audience, there may be outbreak or contagion spoilers in this episode. So if you have not yet seen either of those, cut us off now and come back as soon as you finish watching. So today we're talking a little bit about outbreak response or disease response. Syra, can you tell us a little bit about your background with these kind of responses and how you got into this field? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first starting off, I have over a decade of experience in emergency management as it relates to highly infectious disease threats. And so what that means is I like to call myself a science communicator and an infectious disease epidemiologist and a biosecurity advisor. And all those things mean different scopes of work. So first, you know, as an infectious disease epidemiologist, what got me really interested was watching the movie Outbreak, which we're going to get into. I was nine years old and I remember sitting there, my older brother put on the movie. I certainly obviously was under the age of actually watching it, but I, I stuck around in the living room and I saw these scientists wearing these hazmat suits. And I just have this vivid memory. I turn over to my mom and I tell her, you know what, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And she looked at me like, yeah, you're crazy. That's that's not going to happen. So my my interest in the field of special pathogens started at a very young age. And so, you know, as they say, the rest is history of where I am today. I actually work in the space of special pathogens and highly infectious diseases, but not just on the hospital end of hospital preparedness and response. I also have a background in public health preparedness and response. Before I came to New York City Health and Hospitals, where I work heavily on hospital preparedness and response, I was part of the bio threat and chemical threat team in Texas. And so an interesting fact there is, you know, when we had the initial cases of Ebola in 2014 in the United States, it was actually my team that diagnosed the first three cases there. And what's also interesting is when I was doing my master's thesis uh, a few years before, it was on Ebola. And so my master's thesis was talking about the threat of Ebola and how we could potentially see it here in the United States and how underprepared we are. And so being part of the biothreat team in Texas at the moment where we actually 
solve the first U.S. case, Alvibola, was just a surreal experience. And so my interest has just been very much on how to prepare and respond, recover from and mitigate these types of threats. And then the last is my role as a biosecurity advisor. And what that means is, you know, we live in a world where we have all these biological agents and we have all these different outbreaks. But as a biosecurity advisor, we want to make sure that folks that are doing research with biological agents for legitimate purposes, we have good frameworks and we have good regulatory policies and guidances in place because we know that biological agents can be misused for biological threats and they pose a public health and national security concern. And so I sit on the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity for the United States. And so we very much look at making sure from a biosecurity standpoint, how to keep people our plants, our agriculture, our food supply, and the agents themselves safe from any misuse. That's amazing. You know, I'm just trying to picture tiny nine-year-old Dr. Madad sitting in front of the TV watching <laughs> Outbreak. And it's so funny that you say that because I'm going to hand it over to Rachel because she did not get to experience that as a nine-year-old, even though she desperately wanted to. I did not. So, Syrah, I was so excited about this podcast episode because it gave me the opportunity at long last to watch Outbreak. I was not allowed to watch it as a kid, so now I'm getting to do it for work. So that's pretty exciting. I think for our listeners, just to review, so Outbreak is from 1995. It's a peak 90s movie about a viral hemorrhagic fever that's transmitted from a monkey to a small California town. And then we've got Contagion, which is from 2011 and is about a respiratory virus that turns into a global pandemic, may or may not be caused by Gwyneth Paltrow, who's to say. Uh, but Sarah, in your opinion, between these two movies, which did you think was a more realistic depiction of an outbreak and an outbreak response? Well, I think they both obviously first were fictional movies that explored the spread of an infectious disease and then looking at it from a response standpoint. And so Outbreak was more of a localized uh, epidemic, didn't necessarily reach that pandemic level. And then Contagion was obviously a global pandemic. So I think there were aspects of both movies that were A, dramatized, but then also shed some reality of what would play out in these types of circumstances. But if I had to choose what would be a bit more realistic, I would certainly say Contagion. I think there were certain aspects of it that certainly hit home for me on a number of different fronts. I think just to shed a little bit more light on Outbreak and, and Contagion, I think in Outbreak, what was interesting is that when you look at first the scope and spread of the infectious disease that they were discussing, and just uh, looking at it from a collaboration standpoint, was it one scientist? Was it two scientists? Was it multi-agencies? And we know in a real-life situation, Oftentimes, it's an all-hands-on-deck moment, depending on the scope and severity, right? So as we know, all instances are local. So if an outbreak starts locally, then it's the local health department, it's the local jurisdictions that are responding. And as things evolve, if they do start to continue to spread, you'll have a much more regional response and then a much more national response. And that's kind of how it tends to start is like a bottom-up approach versus a top-down that we see here, particularly in the United States. I think for the movie Contagion, there's a lot that we can talk about and dive into. But I think what I appreciated was just the multi-agency collaboration. You saw CDC and the World Health Organization, the local health department. You saw the hospital getting involved and the like. So 
I think there are certainly lots of bits and pieces that were interesting in both movies. Yeah, one of the things that really strikes me that is depicted and would love to hear your thoughts on is is how people try to escape from quarantine in these two movies. The sheer number of explosions and <laughs> outbreak, really. Um, do you see this many explosions in day-to-day life in New York City, people trying to escape quarantine? <laughs> yeah, no, not, uh, not definitely not to that magnitude, right? You don't see the military coming in and saying, hey, if you leave your house, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And I think we experienced that to a certain extent, right, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Our version of a lockdown is very different than like China's version of a lockdown, where when we talk about restrictions of movement, we technically didn't have that classical lockdown definition as people tend to tend to think we, we were still able to move about we were able to go outside if we needed to get food if we wanted to get groceries you were able to do all of those things but there was obviously curtailment of various services and so i think as we talk about people trying to get out of quarantine that certainly is something that played out here in the united states because our entire pandemic response was based on the honor system so if you think you had it or if you think you were exposed, uh, you were basically taking your own responsibility to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to just self-monitor myself for any symptoms. A lot of people did that and a lot of people didn't, right? It goes to the huge influence of human behavior as we talk about pandemic preparedness and response. Because you may have the best system in place. You may have really great systems and infrastructure in place. But if the people don't buy into what you're doing, if they don't believe in why it's important to stay home, why it's important to quarantine, why it's important to get vaccinated, you're not going to have a good successful response at the end of the day. Yeah, it's funny that last point about vaccination. I think one of the things that really struck me in outbreak was the speed at which they were able to create both the cure and the vaccine for for the pathogen that was the star of the movie, so to speak. In your experience, how realistic is it that they really went from nothing to to medical countermeasure in practically a split second in that movie? Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting, right? So I think uh, if I recall the timeline, it was within 140 days where the film is showing a vaccine being developed from that time to being distributed. And in reality, as you know, we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the big miracles and one of the big successes of the pandemic was that we were able to get you know, safe and effective vaccines in under a year, not only developed, but also authorized and then begin the distribution process. But that's really speaking here in the United States, right? We could talk about how that played out globally. And that was a huge triumph because conventionally, it could take a decade or so for a vaccine to go from the development phase to the authorization to the distribution phase and the like. So we were already kind of seeing that that speed play out in the COVID-19 pandemic without cutting corners of safety and effectiveness. But what I find interesting now is if you compare, obviously, what we've experienced to that movie, the United States National Biodefense Strategy that was recently released, it actually says that the federal government here in the U.S. is committing to achieving that 100-day mission goal of developing vaccines for new pandemics within 100 days. So that movie showed, you know, I think within 140 days, as I mentioned. Now, is that a reality, that goal that the National Biodefense Strategy has? It's a very ambitious goal. I think that we could do it if we had the political will, the funding, the infrastructure in place. But we all know that it's not just about the vaccines, right? You can have a safe and effective vaccine available It's all about vaccinations. And it's that last mile that makes a huge difference. And so you can have a vaccine developed within 100 days, which is the goal now. But are you actually going to get it distributed and people actually taking the vaccine that's being offered? 
And I think if you look at it from the standpoint of, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, here in the United States, we have over 70% of our population that's considered fully vaccinated. Huge public health achievement right there. But compare that to the rest of the world, where only 70% of the world has received one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine since these vaccines have been available in the last couple of years. And then if you drill down even further, only 30% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose. So the vaccine equity question obviously is huge. So it's one thing to have a vaccine available, but then actually having it available globally, I think, is a huge challenge. And I believe it was in the movie Contagion where it was mentioned that it would take a year to manufacture and distribute a, a vaccine during that time of that movie. So again, it was just really interesting to see some of those timelines and plots come together. For those of us who were going through that process of getting the trials out and making sure people had access to both the research studies, the trials, but also then the vaccines in the early days in those first pushes, especially for healthcare workers and public health responders, it did feel a little like Hollywood, right? Like we haven't seen countermeasure development on that scale and that scope really, I think, in our careers. And so it's just incredible to see I think you said it best, like everything in the system coming together to really make that push a success in a way that we couldn't have even envisioned. When you're predicting something in Hollywood and it comes comes to fruition, it's pretty amazing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I like these movies, right? Because they put in some realism, but then they put some drama in it for entertainment purposes because you got to do it, right? <laughs> no one likes a dry yeah, movie. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I do appreciate that about Contagion. I rewatched that this week to get ready for the podcast. And I loved that they actually explained what the R naught was of the disease. Or I thought, well, that didn't happen in Outbreak. That didn't come up in that movie. But I wanted to ask you, Syra, in both of the movies that we're talking about, they emphasize this federal response. You know, in Contagion, it's a much larger federal response because it's a global pandemic. And you've got EIS officers going into towns to investigate the outbreaks. Whereas in the movie Outbreak, it's a large federal military response to a very localized outbreak situation. So what do you think is a typical federal response? Which of these do you think depicts that the best? I think the movie Contagion certainly depicts that the best because as we know with infectious disease outbreaks, it depends on the size, scope, and severity and the type of mode of transmission and the infectious disease that you're dealing with. So if you're talking about a fast-moving viral hemorrhagic fever, that has an incubation period of less than 24 hours, I'm sure the U.S. government's going to be all over it. If you're talking about, obviously, an airborne respiratory infectious disease where you're seeing cases pop up in multiple different countries, right, that's a completely different scenario. But at the end of the day, we know these outbreaks are national security threats. And so it depends on the resources that are available in that given community. I think in the movie Outbreak, it was set in California in a suburban area. And you don't know how many hospitals they have there. It looked like maybe you, you may have just one local health department that could easily get overwhelmed. But in that case, you probably will get much more federal support. And uh, depending on hospital capacity, they'll probably send in reinforcements and the like. So I think it depends on multiple different factors related to infectious disease. So the disease itself, it's related to the public health capacity, it's related to the healthcare capacity, and then the resources they need to try to contain the, the outbreak. Um, and as, as we look at the response, right, is it trying to contain it or is it trying to mitigate it, right? Two very different uh, scenarios there. And as all of us within NETEC, right, we, we've gone through both. Our experience during Ebola was all about containment. 
we didn't want more people obviously getting infected. So what can we do to contain this, this virus to make sure, you know, things don't spiral out of control? COVID was a completely different ballgame because it was all about risk reduction. It was the cat's out of the bag. People are going to get it. How can we reduce people's risk of, you know, not getting it or having a, a less severe outcome? So it's all about, as I mentioned, infectious disease, but it's also about what is your response strategy or posture? Is it mitigation and reduction or is it containment? I think back to the early days of COVID when we were still really thinking about containment. Like we as the network of biocontainment units across the country were still thinking about putting patients on our biocontainment units. We were taking our first COVID patients that came into our health system and putting them on these units and, and using our PPE and using our containment care strategies in a way that quickly became apparent it just wasn't sustainable or appropriate. And I'm curious from your perspective in those early days as New York really had to switch quickly from containment to just keeping heads above water to stay afloat with the sea of patients coming in. What did that look like in the minds of the preparedness group in New York or in the people who are doing public health practice to think, oh, geez, we've moved from containment to really patient care at a mass level where containment's out of the picture now? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, because if we look at the New York City experience as, you know, being the nation's first epicenter, and we look back to see when the first lab confirmed case was, it wasn't until really March. And at that time, no one knew how widespread or prevalent COVID-19 was in the community. And so thinking, okay, this is just a onesie, twosie type of case, and hopefully it doesn't get worse than that. You know, the strategy was very much okay. Let's make sure that we're isolating these patients, we're giving them the resources that they need. That quickly changed in the matter of, I wouldn't even say weeks, right? It was days where you realized, okay, this is a much bigger problem. And in the early days, you know, you're working off of very limited information, especially when it comes to the actual infectious disease. So we didn't know about pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread. We didn't know what the incubation period was or how many people were actually infected in the community or the are not, right? You saw that being discussed in the movie Contagion of how many, how many people can one person who's infected infect others. And so there was so much information that we just had, we didn't know. Our science was still evolving. So I can't remember exactly when, but you know, I think it was a very quick pivot from containment to mitigation. And that quick period resulted in obviously not just a surge of patients coming in, but trying to figure out the whole four S's like we talk about in emergency management. Do we have enough room for these patients, right? A space. Do we need to build out more bed capacity? But we may build out more bed capacity, but do we have enough staffing to support that bed capacity? Do we have enough resources in, in the form of PPE and supplies that we need to care for these patients? Do we have a good system set up to move patients if one hospital gets overwhelmed? Because one of the, one of the big issues during the COVID-19 pandemic was it wasn't just all hospitals giving, getting overwhelmed at the same time. It was certain hospitals were getting overwhelmed sooner and quicker because of the location. And that speaks to our social vulnerabilities to infectious diseases where certain people were at higher risk. And so when you look at, for example, here in New York City, one of the first hospitals to get overwhelmed in the United States was Elmer's Hospital. And no surprise there, if you look at Elmer's Hospital, it's located on the most diverse zip codes in all of the United States. It has a huge immigrant population, multi-generational homes, a lot of essential workers working there. So a lot of those things came into, into play. 
But it's really interesting, right? And ha- of how that strategy very quickly pivoted from containment to mitigation and try to just keep keeping up with that volume that was seen during the first wave. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that it feels like so far away and yet it feels like it could so easily happen again, right? Where we're seeing these pockets of of a potential infectious disease really overwhelming our system. And sometimes I just look at where our system is today and think, I'm not sure we've recovered. Like, I don't think our preparedness level is even back up to zero compared to where we were in those early days. I agree. I think while we talk about the acute phase of the pandemic ending and obviously the public health emergency being declared over for COVID-19, that doesn't mean that we're any less vulnerable to outbreaks and pandemics. In fact, I would venture to say we're probably even more vulnerable because you're seeing not just what's happening at the local level, but let's look at what's happening at the federal and national level. They're still fighting on pandemic preparedness. You know, we had over a million people here in the United States alone die from this disease. And yet you have some of our federal entities saying, well, we don't want to fund any additional pandemic preparedness. We don't even want to invest in newer vaccines, right? And so this cycle of panic and neglect just hits so quickly. And and I know, Lauren, you've certainly experienced it, right, with all the different outbreaks that we've all gone through, whether it was Zika or obviously Ebola, you kind of name it. It's that cyclical cycle that just gets us every single time. And our posture of relying on emergency supplemental funding is what gets us right because we don't we don't have a steady stream of funding for outbreak and pandemic response it's like you have to get that emergency injection of funds before you can scale up response and it gets us every single time yeah absolutely i think panic and neglect is the perfect summary of where we are Rachel and I are working on another project, and the scenario for that project is a thousand patients a day for a hundred days, and it's a really important look at the NDMS programming, the National Disaster Medical System programming in our country. But it's hard to convince people the value of planning for a thousand patients a day for a hundred days when there's forty patients boarding in their emergency department and they're losing nursing staff every single day, and we can't fill some of the highest vacant positions of our land that that are public health response oriented, you know, so it's a hard place to be in. And hopefully, well, hopefully someone's listening to this podcast that can do something about it. (laughs) I hope so, because, uh, you know, the people that hold the most power is not the president, it's the mayors and the governors. And so we can educate the viewers to, to ensure that they're reaching out to their elected officials to make sure they're doing right by their constituents and the people they serve, the better we'll all be. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, Contagion came out in 2011, and and sometimes, you know, it's always on TV, right? So sometimes I see it on TV and I catch a few minutes of it here and there and think it is pretty close in a lot of parts of it to how we were feeling in those early days of, of the pandemic and especially during some of the lockdown scenes. And Rachel had mentioned to me that it was so highly downloaded in early to mid 2020, and I couldn't figure out if that was because someone you know, people needed something to relate to, or it was escapist because it felt like maybe it was so different than what we were experiencing. Why do you think it was so popular back in those early days of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? So I think first, humans are inherently curious beings. We're driven by desire to explore, to learn, and make sense of the world around us. And so when you're dealing with this unknown situation, of this pandemic brewing during that time, people were fascinated and they wanted to learn more about infectious diseases and pandemics. And so I think it's no surprise that movies like Outbreak and Contagion were uh, going viral, so to speak, because folks wanted a reflection of real life events, what to expect, you know, is this something that we're going to actually experience? 
in these movies and actually in real life. It was also, I think, a bit of a form of emotional release. We were all just figuring out, like, how do I feel? And, and this is a scary situation. And so let me get a little bit more information and, and kind of explore what that looks like. Because there's a lot of fear and anxiety, obviously, and uncertainty in these types of events. I think another reason is desire for just more information and education. There were certain elements that we just discussed that were a bit real, but also dramatized. So I think it's just exploring like what to expect uh, at the end of the day. And I think those were just some of probably the reasons why those two movies were being downloaded uh, at a high rate. Um, I will mention the Netflix docuseries that I was in, which was actually filmed in 2018 and 2019, called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. And Oh, Lord, I feel like that title has to, to change. It's hilarious. But the directors of that Netflix series decided on the release date back in 2019 that it was going to be released January 2020. So none of us had any control over it. So when it was released January 2020, it very quickly became the top 10 most viewed movies or docuseries on Netflix. And it was trending for at least six to seven months, which was which was crazy. And I think personally, for for me, as being one of the individuals that they were following in that docu-series over a period of the, the six to eight episodes that they had, it was a nerve-wracking experience because I wasn't prepared for being in the spotlight or getting questions from the media left and right of like, what do we expect and how is this going to play out? I wasn't trained in talking to the media at all, right? I think that for many of us in this particular field, we're either lab rats, which I was certainly one of them, where I was a bench scientist for many years at the USDA, then I went into public health, then I went into hospital preparedness, but I was never speaking directly to the media about what I do. I was kind of in my own bubble. So to to be kind of in the spotlight and going on some of the most major news outlets and then getting responses back from the public, both good and bad, was just a really interesting experience for myself. And the one thing that I'll say is I had to grow thick skin really, really quick because I just was not prepared of the backlash of people saying, well, what you're saying is false. This virus is not real. Masks don't work. I was just so used to people believing in the science and what I'm saying from all my experience that this was completely new to me. And, and so I'm, I'm sure the actors that were actually in the movie Contagion and Outbreak, they probably got maybe questions or messages themselves from the public just to say, hey, we're watching your movie or God, it's just, it feels so surreal because I, I know I got those messages and I still get them today, which is crazy. That was one of the most jarring things for me during the pandemic was sort of the, the visceral reaction, positive and negative that uh, people had anytime you did media, no matter what you were talking about trying to get the science out there, trying to talk about what we're doing in the field of preparedness and response and knowing that it's as evidence-based as possible. And then hearing that people don't trust us, people don't believe us, people um, are angry for us speaking out was, was scary and hard. I think it goes to show you there's a lot of work cut out for all of us in terms of building more science communication into our responses, educating the public better and building trust in science. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Sarah. And I think kind of going off that idea of, of building awareness and education within the community, I know part of your work at New York City Health and Hospitals is helping prepare the city for outbreaks and these types of response situations. So what are some of the tools or practices that you use to do that? So it's an excellent question. And, you know, we have different toolboxes at the healthcare level than what the public health 
folks have, right? Because they're two very separate entities, healthcare is where patients present. And what we have in terms of preparedness, response and recovery in our toolbox is a little bit different than what public health has, which, you know, is looking at it from a much more community focus in that sense. So I think the first is in the role that I'm in from a hospital preparedness response in the field of emergency management, we have a number of different tools that we rely on. And I like to look at these tools in the cycle of emergency management. And so the cycle of emergency management, you know, is preparedness and prevention. Then it gets into mitigation and response, and then it gets into recovery. We have different tools in each of these specific phases of emergency management. So first, as we talk about preparedness and prevention, a lot of the tools that I often use to prepare for these types of events is doing drills and exercises like tabletops. In fact, just last month, I did a tabletop on bird flu with our executive leaders, and we had some of our public health folks and CDC join. It was a closed door tabletop exercise, and we were looking at the evolution of avian influenza H5N1 and what challenges it would pose to a healthcare system. So for those that may or may not have heard of bird flu before, it is something in the early 2022 in the United States where our infectious disease surveillance systems detected H5N1, which is a highly pathogenic avian influenza. And since then, we've had over 50 plus million wild and domestic birds that have been affected across all of the United States. And it's an unprecedented large scale outbreak that we've never seen before. And luckily, when it, as it comes to the risk to humans, it's, it's still low, which is wonderful. But as we know, it could just be a couple of mutations away from sustained human-to-human transmission. We don't know if and when that will happen, but because there's so much transmission happening in uh, various animal species that the risk obviously continues to grow. And when you do see a human case, those, these sporadic human cases, the case fatality is really high, over 50%. Since 2003 to 2021, you know, there's been nearly uh, 900 documented cases of H5N1 um, in humans. And with that, over 50% unfortunately died. So for us, you know, I did the bird flu tabletop with my team because we wanted to prepare if and when we start seeing sustained human to human transmission, if we start seeing the patients present in healthcare systems, like what is our preparedness posture? What do we need to do? What are our trigger points? And, and how do we need to respond? So a couple of things that came out of that particular tabletop was we're developing a, a HPAI or highly pathogenic avian influenza IRG or instant response guide, which we'll talk about what our escalation is going to look like. And we're going to look at our communication strategy uh, of how do we communicate in real time as things evolve from one case to two cases to three cases and the like. So a lot of work that is going on behind the scenes based on the tabletop, but that's just giving you one example of some of our preparedness tools is we could do these drills and exercises. We also do a lot of in-service training. So one of the in-service trainings that is actually going on right now that my team is overseeing is we're doing VHF refresher trainings across the entire system. So we actually have a vendor supporting us going into our EDs, going to our frontline staff at our 11 hospitals, and providing refresher, Ebola, loss of fever, Marburg PPE training, because we know it's an art to putting it on and taking it off. And the last thing you want to do is give that training when you actually have a real patient. So we do a lot of that preparedness work ahead of time. And then other tools in our toolbox is we do a lot of science and risk communication. One of the benefits of a, a healthcare system that I work in is both communicating with staff and patients. We have over 2 million patient email addresses. So when we have a new vaccine available or when we have a new message, 
we can send that message out to our patients. And so we're able to do that, whether it's, hey, you know, we want you to wear a mask because if you're going outdoors, there is wildfire, you know, smoke, which we're experiencing right now, or we want to make sure that you get the most updated COVID-19 vaccine, we can have that, we could do that. We have all staff messages that we send out to staff all the time. So that's another tool that we have is that science and risk communication. We do a lot of syndromic surveillance. So at the hospital level, we've built in our own dashboards of monitoring who, what, when, where uh, patients are coming in with what illness and is it above the, the regional or, or hospital threshold in that sense. So we do a lot of that. And then, you know, just talking a little bit more on our emergency preparedness plans, right? We develop a lot of different plans, protocols, and processes. We collaborate with our local, state, and, and national public health partners all the time. And the last part is during the actual response, we actually have an instant command structure, which is part of our hospital operations, that if and when we start seeing an impact to hospital operations, another tool is bringing on that instant command structure, getting designated rules in those seats, making sure key personnel are at the table, and making sure we have an efficient decision-making coordination and response allocation you know, a posture during the actual event. So there's a lot of different tools, right? And that's not even talking about the staffing and the space that we have and, and, and the supplies, but it's talking more about some of the higher level uh, tools and resources that are available. I, I think the three of us probably all were involved in various exercises pre-COVID or pandemic preparedness. And I think, you know, that was something that was exercised pretty heavily pre-COVID. And then the COVID response happened and a lot of things didn't necessarily go the way we would have expected them to go, to put it mildly. So, Syra, what to you were some of the big surprises and how that response actually went versus some of the things we saw in exercises? Well, I think we had a good foundation, right? Because you all have to start somewhere, right? Now you can start from a, a place of weakness or you can start from a place of strength. And I like to say that we started from a place of strength because we had some of the foundations in place early screening for symptoms, right? So even before the COVID-19 pandemic, I know a lot of our hospitals were doing syndromic-based approaches to patients coming in in the sense where you were asking any patient, if you have a fever, cough, and rash, please put a mask on, right? If you have travel history, let us know. And so some of that basic foundation went a long way because even mitigating one person from getting infected is as if you're preventing a larger outbreak from happening, right? And so having some of these infrastructures and protocols and processes in place certainly helped a lot, as well as making sure that you had identified, you know, negative pressure isolation rooms where facilities already knew where they were. So when you saw a patient coming in that required that specific, you know, level of isolation, you had, you knew exactly where it was, you knew where your PPE is. So I think building that level of preparedness was really important. Now, what surprised all of us was the sheer volume that was coming in, right? And that's something that really nobody could have predicted, because as I mentioned, we had no idea there was pre and asymptomatic spread. We had no idea that COVID-19 was already being seeded in our communities way before March, right? It was down to November, December, and we just started seeing, obviously, it, it uh, brew more and more in the communities where it was a point where you had a large influx of patients coming in. So a lot of those aspects is something that it's really hard to prepare for. But now as we look back at the COVID-19 pandemic, there are silver linings. One of the silver linings is now I think all the hospital systems probably have a surge plan in place with potentially trigger points. So if and when we do see another large scale protracted mass casualty event like we were seeing with COVID-19 on a daily basis, 
at least we have some sort of emergency preparedness plans to rely on, which is just obviously one single thing, right? Because plans are nothing unless you have bodies and resources and, you know, the support that you need. But at least now we have some of that better infrastructure in place. The key now is how do you maintain it, right? And 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 that's really the the million dollar question. I think that's actually a perfect setup for our last question for you, which is, you know, looking back at COVID and then looking forward to the potential risk for future pandemics and our own pandemic preparedness. I think you've talked a lot about what healthcare facilities and healthcare entities can do as good preventative measures. But what are maybe some of the things that people in the community can do or policymakers? You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of power within our mayors and governors and the decision making that can occur around a response. So what are some of those key takeaways or key actions that you think would be beneficial there? Yeah, well, you know, all outbreaks start at the community level, right? And so making sure that we have resources for communities, by communities, to communities is really, really important. And so I think it first starts with knowing where your vulnerabilities are. And we have a lot, we have many. The COVID-19 pandemic certainly shed light on our social vulnerabilities. We've seen, obviously, many people being at higher risk for infectious diseases based on their, their race, their income, their zip code, their employment status. So knowing that these vulnerabilities exist in our communities the question now is, what are we doing about it? And certainly there's a lot that is happening depending on what state you're living in. So I'm not going to speak for all of the United States because as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, all instances are local. So I can speak to New York City where there is a lot of investment at the local level. I'm making sure that our communities, you know, there's good outreach that we are trying to build healthier communities uh, because we know a healthier community means a healthier nation. And so there is a lot of investment happening, obviously, at the community level. But it's not just about public health investment and healthcare investment. It's also making sure that you're educating the public on what it is that will keep them safe and why it's so important to seek healthcare services, why it's so important to get a test, why it's so important to get vaccinated. And so that requires a, a different level of response where it requires much more education. It requires trusted messengers uh, to go into the communities and share this type of education with them. So I think a lot of those things certainly go a long way. And what's really, really important here, the bottom line is we need a 24-7, 365 infrastructure that is durable and flexible that we could call on a moment's notice and employ at our communities if and when we start seeing another infectious disease outbreak. We don't need a system that you only put on during an emergency response because that is the type of system that is set up to fail. So it's really, really important that we invest uh, in our communities, that we not only obviously have a good public health infrastructure and healthcare infrastructure. I mean, those are things that are given, right? We all know why it's so important to have hospital capacity, why it's so important to have good surveillance systems, um, why it's so important to have good vaccine distribution and administration and research and development. All those things are given. But what's not given is strengthening our social safety nets, right? Because we've seen the outbreaks, they exacerbate our existing social and economic disparities. And so we need to prioritize social safety nets to support vulnerable populations during crisis and out of crisis and ensure that they have all the resources, healthcare, food, housing, essential services that they need. And that is what's going to help us in the next outbreak, in the next pandemic. It's not a hospital that is so strong that they can take on a thousand patients. It's what do we have built at the community level that we could uh, ensure that there's more resiliency in there? I really appreciate what you were saying about trusted messengers. You know, I think 
we've all kind of touched on with the COVID response, things got political and there was a lot of static that interfered with science education and communication. So I think those trusted messengers can make a huge difference in community preparedness and awareness. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, that that is one of our goals at NETEC too, is to make sure that we're getting trusted messages out to the public and out to our healthcare providers and our public health practitioners to make sure that in those early days of an outbreak or in, you know, the management of a single patient that we're doing the best we can, knowing that it's founded in science and, and good practice and um, that if we act early at the community level, we really can stop an outbreak from becoming a pandemic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that actually hits up on another really interesting fact about both the movies Outbreak and Contagion is that they actually started from a spillover event. And that really portrays our reality even today uh, as we talk about you know where many of these outbreaks start from. In fact, science and literature shares that over 70% of many of these outbreaks are zoonotic in nature. So certainly not a surprise there. I think, you know, in the the movie Outbreak, you're seeing, you know, a monkey, you know, being the the host and reservoir there that's now transmitting this biohermetic fever to others. And in the movie Contagion, you're seeing that to a pig, to now the main actress that gets infected. And it speaks to a larger issue of prevention, right? So we work a lot on preparedness, meaning you know it's going to happen. What are you doing to reduce the threat? But there's so much more work that has to happen on the prevention end. Like, what are you doing to prevent these spillovers from even happening? And unfortunately, we live in a world now where these events are continuing to happen at a much, much more faster pace. We have environmental changes that's brewing, you know, spillover events from happening much more frequently, like deforestation, urbanization, encroachment into wildlife habitats. All these factors are increasing the chances of spillover events. I think what's more is a uh, analysis that was done in August of 2021 on disease outbreaks over the last four centuries basically showed that the yearly probability of pandemics could increase several fold in the coming decades, largely because of human induced environmental change. And so that really goes to speak to why we need to continue to prepare and prevent these infectious disease outbreaks from happening because they're happening in much more frequency and, and they're happening in, in a much wider geographical location in that sense. And so it's really, really important that we are doing everything we can to prepare and prevent these events from happening. You know, in our episode on The Last of Us and I think our episode on Ebola, the issue of the environment and our changing climate and how that impacts disease spread or, or presence of different pathogens that's come up every time. So I just think that's really interesting to note as we're going through here. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think you've given me the new title of a class for the School of Public Health, Bat to Pig to Gwyneth Paltrow, The Changing Effects of Climate, <laughs> Infectious Disease Threats. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Syra, for joining us today to discuss outbreak response. I think, you know, we've learned so much both about the realities of planning for such a large city to, to prepare and respond to outbreaks, but also about um, nationally and internationally the things that we can do and how they scale from the smallest of community interventions to the largest of multinational responses. So we really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for, for having me on. I think these movies were really interesting to, to watch. It shows the politicalization, the polarization, the misinformation with that with that eclipse of Sanjay Gupta uh, in the movie Contagion talking about, well, what was the role of CDC and X, Y, and Z? I think that was fabulous because it really showed how it played out in real life. 
Um, so really great discussion today. So thanks for having me on. So for those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this episode on pathogens and pop culture. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for NeTech or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.